Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Take on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hoffberg, and joining us today are a few guests coming to us from a project called The Critical Project, and we're going to learn a little bit more about our guests and the work that they're doing. So um, welcome, Nate, John, and Julia. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thanks. So, Nate, let's have you uh, start us off. Uh, Dr. Nate Mohat is with the Rocky Mountain Myrek. He's a suicide prevention researcher and community psychologist. Uh, let us know a little bit about yourself, Nate. Sure. So, I am also a assistant professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Um, and in that role, I am working on some traumatic brain injury uh, research. And so a central theme of my research and work really is around uh, empowering the people who are most, we most commonly think of as our study subjects or participants, really putting them more in the driver's seat when it comes to research and giving them a voice as advisors and leaders in the research enterprise. And how about yourself, John? Uh, yeah, Adam, I'm John Corrigan. I'm a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Ohio State University. And I've been a clinician and a re researcher working in brain injury rehabilitation for uh, some 35 plus years. Uh, and uh, it was uh, I was very pleased when Nate uh, invited me to be part of this project. Excellent. We're so glad to have you on the show today. And um, also our guest on here is Julia Turlinchamp. Um, tell us about yourself, Julia. Hi, I um, am a traumatic brain injury survivor. I uh, have had this injury 14 years this Christmas, so my, my anniversary is in a couple weeks. Um, and I took a few years to get back on my feet and um, I have had a very long process in healing, and um, as many people with traumatic brain injury, traumatic brain injuries understand that it's, it's a it's something that you experience the rest of your life. So, being able to be part of a study like this is very meaningful because it's understanding that it's not just about the acute care, but about the long term care. Excellent. Well, we look forward to uh, diving into that more with you as we uh, go into this podcast today. Um, before we do that, we're going to turn back to Nate for a moment, just to kind of give us a little bit of background. Uh, the project's called Critical. Nate, tell us about the project and your funding source and how you all uh, initiated this work. Sure. Well, first of all, Critical stands for the Coalition for Recovery and Innovation in Traumatic Brain Injury Care Across the Lifespan. And CRITICAL was funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research by a Eugene Washington Patient Engagement Award with the objective of um, looking at long-term uh, recovery and care. So not just immediate post-injury or two years post-injury, but how people live with a traumatic brain injury for the rest of their life and what their care needs might be. Um, and so our project objectives were really threefold. First, we wanted to establish the critical as a coalition of stakeholders and develop their capacity to collaborate together on clinical effectiveness research. Secondly, we wanted to work with this group to develop strategies and resources to really engage individuals with cognitive impairments and traumatic brain injury survivors 
uh, to be effective research advisors. And third, we wanted to develop a national research agenda for improving the lives of those living with traumatic brain injury. And so, you know, that all said, our project activities really involved bringing these group of stakeholders together. We had six traumatic brain injury survivors uh, to be part of this project. They had to have sustained a moderate to a severe traumatic brain injury. Um, and two caregivers of individuals who had um, very severe traumatic brain injuries. We also had uh, seven uh, individuals who we often identify as stakeholder partners who are who were either researchers, clinicians, or policy advocates in the traumatic brain injury field nationally. And we brought this group together uh, in multiple meetings. We had three in-person workshops. We did interviews and online surveys in between the workshops and uh, really worked with them over the period of the year to uh, try out different training and engagement tools to see what worked best for really getting the voice of the TBI survivors and caregivers heard, as well as to build towards developing a set of research priorities based upon this group's feedback. Excellent. Thanks for that introduction. And, you know, I'm so glad you are doing this work and really putting the patient right at the center, which is what patient-centered outcomes research is all about. So, Julia, I wanted to turn to you. Um, as a traumatic brain injury survivor, what does it mean to you that this research is patient-centered? I think what stands out is the fact that we were invited as um, people with, with knowledge and experiences that, that could be used in an effective manner um, in, in research. Typically, you're, you get pretty accustomed in the the medical community to being treated based on your injury or impairment and not as um, a person, as a patient. And, and this is understandable as there's a lot of us <laughs> that are being treated, but um, the fact that, especially with a brain injury, it's a pretty complicated type of injury with a whole range of challenges that are associated with it. So the fact, like, it's very appreciative that in this group in particular, we had a whole range of experiences to be able to share um, because you can't you can't treat a brain injury <laughs> standalone, um, and so that that was very um, empowering, if you will, uh, to to be able to give back in that sense. And one example I often give um, is I uh, I was treated at at a hospital in Seattle, and I, I had to I had to graduate a few different levels before I was allowed to start doing things on my own and. Um, that included occupational therapy, and uh, I am um, I'm a I'm a I'm an old millennial, so I'm <laughs> I'm at the very end of the of the millennial generation. But it means that I never used a checkbook uh, growing up. I used online banking, and I found it very confusing that in order to graduate from my occupational therapy to be able to move on and to be you know have the the check. Uh, uh, the, the box checked on, on my list of recovery that I was doing better, I had to prove that I could balance a checkbook. And I was so confused <laughs> until I finally narrowed down the fact that they didn't understand that I actually had never balanced a checkbook because I always use online banking. And it was, it was for me, I, I, I like to use that example as an understanding of take a minute, understand the patient, 
talk to them, understand their experiences, and why that might not be a good measure of my success. It's the same thing where they had asked me to make a, you know, a soft boiled egg. I never ate soft boiled eggs. Like it was, it was part of my, uh, of, of my therapy. And, and for them, again, they should have just asked me, what is it that would be helpful for us to know that, you know, you are doing better. And I ended up saying, I love making chocolate chip cookies. And that requires me to follow a recipe. And it proves that I am able to, um, read in a, in, you know, in a stable manner and all, all, all the same things that would, um, that go into other types of, of activities. But, but, um, I had to advocate for myself to, to, to be understood as the person and not as the injury because they had a archaic way of looking at, um, at, at, at recovery. And that, I know that's not, that's not a Seattle based, um, thing it's 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 patients experiences all over so being part of this this group was the first time I felt like I was part of a group where I was asked about my own experiences and how that those experiences could be used um, and generalized to be able to help others and um and so I'm hoping I'm I'm answering that question um properly but there you go yeah very much yeah that's extremely helpful and the example's really powerful to think about how we really need to bake in the patient's perspective and the stakeholders' experiences into the into the work, um, rather than this top-down approach. So, uh, Nate, did you have anything to add about why you all chose this really patient-centered model for this study? Well, it, there's a lot of different ways I could answer that. I mean, so first of all, I will say that our fund, the funder for this, Picori, that's exactly what they want. They they want research that um, looks at health conditions from the, and health care from the perspective of the patient in order to improve the health care experience for people receiving care. Um, but the reason that we chose to pursue this more sort of globally than just, you know, what the funder wanted, because we wanted this project and we, and the funder was the right fit. Um, and the reason was really uh, gets back to this idea that uh, traumatic brain injury as a chronic condition that people live with for a long time, and um, this is a somewhat emerging uh, idea and concept that I think John could describe better, but we saw there to be this sort of evidence gap in what are the long-term needs of tra traumatic brain injury survivors. There hasn't been a lot of research asking that question. Um, John, could you sort of fill in the blanks a little bit on uh, traumatic brain injury as a chronic condition? Uh, sure. Um, so I think the the conception of traumatic brain injury has been that it's kind of a, it's an event. Uh, it you go through a period of recovery that period that period is longer or shorter depending on how severe the injury was. But then at some point you reach uh, a uh, point in your life where and your health where you're kind of stable, and then thing life goes on from there. Uh, maybe maybe you're different, maybe uh, a lot or a little, but you're stable. And what what we're discovering is that that's a misnomer. That it's you really don't stabilize. That uh, the recovery is um, quite dynamic, far out. Um, you know, many years past the injury, and it it's not only dynamic as a a health condition. And your health changes, and it interacts with other health problems you may be having. Uh, and I should say that the change is improvement as well as decline. We used to quit thinking about people getting even better 
uh, after a certain point. So it, it, so when I say dynamic, I'm talking about good and bad change. Uh, but it's also dynamic as a life condition. And um, you know, if your eyes are uh, you know open, there's the ability to learn and uh, realizing that uh, life situations change, wants change, and realizing that uh, living with a traumatic brain injury is about uh, recalibrating um, across your lifespan. And, and so, once again, it's chronic there in the sense that it's something you are always uh, tweaking and it's not just stable. Can I just add in? So, I, I, I know that. Um you know, I, I often talk about uh, my my TBI as an invisible disability, and um, part of that is because I, I felt uh, quite a bit of pressure to, um, once I passed these initial stages of recovery and I seemed fine, then I was sort of let loose. There was very little direction that I would uh, and support uh, from the broader community that I could that I could find. Um, to be able to help me learn how to live with my new um, challenges for really the remainder of my life. And I continue to improve, but it doesn't change the fact that um, I, I got my injury right after uh, I graduated from college, and um, I decided to go back to grad school. It took me a while, but it took me about nine years. And even nine years later, after uh, yeah, nine years after my, my injury, I was shocked by... <laughs> these challenges that I had, and I know were directly related to my TBI, but I just hadn't been put in a position where I had been tested in that same manner. And I was fighting tooth and nail with my school to be able to get more um, accommodations to be able to um, help me with my studies. But, but it, was, it was, again, I, I, I was required to be my own advocate because it was very hard to find out in the community that, that that kind of support from a long-term standpoint. So, again, with this study, what was what was nice about it was um, and we we kind of made an, a joke in in the, in the beginning where um, Nate had walked us through of you know about you know what what should be our direction here. And at first we had talked about acute care, uh, and finally in the end, most of the TBI survivors stopped. Everyone was like, "Hey, we don't remember that part." <laughs> We had brain injuries. <laughs> a lot of us had post-traumatic amnesia. Like that—that that, that part, that—that's not going to be an effective conversation. You know, like that's great for maybe um, uh, significant others, family members, what have you, caretakers uh, of those with TBI uh, survivors. But for us, it was so nice for the first time of any project I've been associated with following my accident that I was able to talk about long-term care because I hadn't, it just doesn't feel like it's often discussed what it means five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20, 30, 40, because it is something you live all your life. And, you know, you still have other problems associated with just growing old <laughs> in addition to having brain injury. So. Yeah, that's really helpful to get your perspective. And is there anything that you would want to tell the world or, you know, folks who may not have that lived experience, what do you want them to know about, what it's like to survive a traumatic brain injury? Uh, you know, I, I, I got mine in an interesting time. It was, it was at the peak of the Iraq war when um, TBI or traumatic brain injury was becoming more commonly um, understood, that term. But it was still very stigmatized. And uh, I really struggled professionally and personally to share 
to share my own experience without receiving just sympathy in return um, because I'm extremely resilient and um, as, as really most traumatic brain injury survivors are, um, you have to be resilient to be able to live with, with these challenges. Um, and so I think that um, what, what is most important for me um, as an individual living with this is, is, is to ask for empathy, to ask, um, to encourage questions and to not be shy about those questions. And again, to, to look at the individual as someone who is a survivor, that's why um, it's so important in our identity that we associate ourselves as survivors and not as patients and not as a tragedy or um, someone who has experienced trauma and challenge and that's it. We are people who have overcome a lot and so have our family and our community. And you know, for a lot of us, that's why we are stronger um, and healthier and better it's because of the, of the support that we have around ourselves, including also the healthcare community. So into understanding that it takes a lot of resources and support to be able to help um, to, to overcome those hurdles. Thanks for that. Yeah, I appreciate uh, you sharing that. And I do think that uh, that's a really important takeaway to, to remember. I want to turn now to a little bit uh, more in, into what uh, the research for the study. And um, part of it was conducting interviews. And I understand that, you know, in order to do this project, you really wanted to foster an environment of equality and respect. And tell us a little bit more about how you created that environment, Nate. So I've been thinking about this question a lot because it was one of the central aims of our study to try to understand how to do this well with uh, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury survivors. And, you know, it's, it's the little things, it's the obvious things almost so to say, is I, I think is what it comes down to. You know, so first of all, the first thing we did is that we created an MOU that we had, so a memorandum of understanding that we asked everybody to sign and it expressed our values. So we put up front at the beginning of this project that uh, we valued patient and caregiver perspectives, um, that the research agenda would be based on patient and caregiver uh, recommendations, that we shared responsibility across the group for, for uh, living these values and, and creating this environment, that we were going to work together, um, display mutual respect and equality, um, treat every partner as an equal, that we were going to learn from each other, and that every one of us in the room had valuable knowledge to contribute. So we put those values up front as the first thing we did is we reviewed those and we discussed them and we got everyone to sign in pen on a piece of paper that they were part of this coalition that agreed to these values. This, I think the second thing we did that was sort of a, 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 one of the little things that mattered too is the very first discussion we did, we set it up that way that um, patient and caregiver perspectives were front. So we paired st the stakeholder partners with the patient partners into these listening dyads, these groups of two. And we asked the stakeholder partner to essentially function like a journalist or an interviewer, where they would listen and reflect and make sure that they had really understood what the patient or caregiver was telling them, and then report that back to the community. So 
we put the values up front and make sure everybody agreed to them. And then the very first exercise we did with the group reflected putting patient and caregiver perspectives first in. So that, I think, those two things were really important to launch this in that fashion. That's very helpful. And can you give us an example of maybe uh, what that experience looked like from the perspective of a TBI survivor? Um, I've got a couple quotes I want to share from one of our workshops where I actually was able to sort of take down verbatim what some of our partners said at the end of the project. Um, one of them said, it was good to be in a room with professionals who listened. To have the input of patients and caregivers, we felt validated, heard, and part of something important. Um, and then another person said, you know, as I spoke, I looked at each of you, and each of you were looking me in my eyes. And so those two things, I think, capture a lot of what occurred that is really important. First of all, um, everyone bought into those values that we put in the MOU, and that's reflected in that second quote. Like, everyone really respected each other and paid attention and listened to each other. And um, our participants, our, our partners on this project, uh, recognized that, and it made them, uh, it made it more real that everyone was genuine and was actually listening and looking and paying attention. Um, and then secondly, the other big thing we heard was that first quote, and we heard this many times actually over and over in the interviews and in the workshop, this idea that um, by bringing together an equal coalition of quote-unquote patient partners and stakeholder partners, um, you know, a group of stakeholders that spanned those receiving care and those providing care or studying brain injury, essentially. And putting everybody in the same room and treating the individual who is typically a care recipient as an equal expert to someone like John, who's on the line with us today, who is, a, you know, an internationally recognized research and ex researcher and expert and leader in this field. And that, um, just that act in and of itself of being treated equal to people who are often viewed as um, higher up in the food chain on traumatic brain injury care uh, was a very powerful experience for our participants. Yeah, that's really helpful uh, to, to sort of lay out those uh, rules of engagement or this model of understanding each other in order to build that thriving uh, environment of equality and respect. Um, John, I understand, uh, as Nate mentioned, that you were one of the professional stakeholders in this group. How, how did uh, that experience play out for you and what did you contribute to the environment? Um, well, I hope I contributed good things to the environment. Um, if you ask me, I did. Uh, but uh, I, as, as Nate's saying, that this really takes a – it's a value shift, uh, and I think for, for me the, the, the central value is that the most important thing in the room is the lived experience, the lived experience of the person who's had the injury, the lived experience of the family member or caregiver uh, – uh, of a person who's had the injury, and 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 really the lived experience of the professional as well. So instead of you know you know what did the book say or what article did I read last week, but more the lived experience as a professional. And uh, you know, PCORI is is about um, em empowering the healthcare decision making 
uh, of individuals. Uh, most of my funding for 30, 35 years has come from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, which uh, endorses a, a very similar, actually broader value, which is that um, research um, should be uh, about the uh, lived experience of persons with disability, uh, and they have been, they have they use a uh, approach called participatory action research, and it's basically you know nothing about me without me applied to to doing research. So uh, as part of that, we have had an advisory council that's made up of individuals with brain injury, family members, clinicians, uh, researchers. Uh, that has advised us. It's a standing group. It's been around for um, more than 25 years. We actually have some members who've been on it the entire 25 years, uh, but of course the membership changes. Uh, and we use them for, you know, our big picture thinking, um, for whittling down the big picture to specific projects, and and helping us with as the projects, uh, you know, proceed and and even as they. Um, as we're finishing up and interpreting our data, we all, uh, our stakeholders are involved even in looking at the data and saying, what does it mean to you? So uh, you might say that I had 25 years of practice, you know, to to you know for uh, this project, um, uh, and uh, it really you 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 flip gears is something I learned early on. It maybe took me four or five years, but early on that you're flipping gears from being that subject matter expert to um, you know, listening for the jewels, and the and 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 the jewels come. That that the, there's just some incredible insights um, that uh, that you hear if you you allow those who have lived the experience to share it. Excellent. I, I'm so glad you you talked about also you know this being actually something that's been happening for decades, and I think sometimes. Uh, we think of this as a paradigm shift to put the patients at the center, but really it, it's kind of nice to hear that some organizations and funding sources have really been baking this in uh, for many years. And, and I'm glad we're doing the podcast today to really help draw attention to this to this style of research. I want to turn back over to Julia now for a moment and just thinking about, um, Julia, your experience as a TBI survivor participating in this type of research. Um, Give us a, a little bit of uh, what your takeaways are and, and your advice potentially to other uh, caregivers and survivors who may be interested in, in taking an active role. Something I was, I was surprised to learn from uh, one of my conversations with the, another researcher in the group was that sometimes uh, researchers, uh, clinicians, what have you, are, um, are, are, are cautious or not always uh, comfortable approaching patients or, or people with, um, with lived experience to ask them to participate because it's time consuming, it might be emotionally stressful, what have you. And I think that the reality is, is that, um, you know, is that many people want to share their experience, if, especially if they know it can, it can contribute to something good, even if it's something small. Um, and, and to know that, um, you are being heard in a very constructive manner is extremely empowering and meaningful, as I've mentioned before. And, and also just to know that from, from a standpoint of, of, as a participant, it was extremely um, appreciative knowing that researchers 
you know, felt that that our opinions mattered. So, I, I mean, that, that that is that is what I actually wanted to share with researchers and just in doing projects like this. As for TBI survivors, I I mean, for me, I I um I I really enjoyed being part of a group that had the breakdown of of the number of researchers versus TBI survivors and and, and caretakers uh, because it was such a it created so much more balance than, you know, what I think that sometimes when I was trying to explain this to, to friends, for example, they thought that I was talking about a support group. <laughs> um, and then it was, it was hard to explain about, about its value unless you're really part of it or you're someone with a lived experience. Because for me, I felt it was kind of a, a whole, a whole range of, of those, um, uh, factors of it, it, it in some ways it was a support group but it was a really constructive support group where I felt that I could share my experiences feel like I was being heard and knowing that it could offer value um, in the in the long run and I also really um, appreciated just meeting other TBI survivors and caretakers who could share with me their experiences of of their resilience and you know I often talk about a TBI um, a TBI in the sense that I had to be really creative about how to take my weaknesses and turn them into strengths. And we all have different strengths. No matter what's happened to you in your life, we all have different strengths. And so it was really interesting just to, to learn about how people with similar injuries to mine, but very different backgrounds, how they, what, what path they chose to walk. And, um, and also and how they've chosen to, in their personal time to, to be able to share their experience and 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 um and so that that was extremely um I, I, empowering again I keep using that word because I don't know other any other better word than to say that I, I was really appreciative to to be part of a community like that and it was a very unique experience and I really I really hope that there are more studies like this because I think it's you get a lot out of it as a as a survivor or and caretaker. Great. Let's turn to John. Um, and John, you mentioned also, you know, your role as a professional stakeholder also brings lived experience to the table. And I, I was really intrigued by that. Um, so I was hoping you could sort of expand on that and talk about how, you know, other professionals can be involved as stakeholders in this type of research. Well, I, I, um, this is kind of a, a bit, maybe a bit redundant with what we've already said, but um, it's a different role than what we are typically placed in. You know, when you're uh, a trainer, you're expected, you know, to be the expert and say, this is how to do it. If you're an educator, you're supposed to be, you know, know, know all the facts. Uh, even as a clinician, as a professional, the, often the uh, clients and, and family members are looking to us for answers. And this is different. This is when you're saying, you know, I'm not the expert. I'm not in an expert role here. Um, I'm I'm here to, um, you know, not not just listen. I, listening is you know something I do as a psychologist quite a bit, but um, to uh, to really hear the learn the lived experience and compare that to what I know, you know. Uh, and some of those facts that I carry around in my head, and it's it's just it's a different mode. I think that the longer we're in, you know, the field, the more we get, you know, we 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 drink the Kool Aid of oh, you're smart, you're the expert, 
and um, that that uh, attitude will uh, not allow some of these new ideas to to um, to really surface. And so, uh, uh, it, what I'd say to professionals is, is that uh, you got to find a different gear, uh, and if you do, you know you're going to like it. And uh, let's now turn back over to Nate. So, Nate, you've been sort of a researcher in this participatory style for, for years, decades, you know, what would you say to other researchers who are really trying to pursue um, this, this style, this, this uh, orientation towards uh, the lived experience being the center of the project? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. It's, you know, I go back to a little bit to when I was a student and I was learning about participatory research in um, working in Native American communities. And one of the central themes that we were often presented with in um, working cross-culturally in participatory research is that you really have to um, build trust and relationships first. And one of the great things about this project is we really saw how valuable um, that was. I loved, Julia, your comment about this being s somewhat like a support group or people thinking it sounded like a support group. Because I would say one, a big, the central piece of advice that I would like to give on how to do this is take the time up front to build a trusting environment. Don't rush in to try to solve a problem, but instead treat relationship building as the basis of good engagement. Um, so sometimes we don't think of like getting to know somebody or becoming a friend as part of our professional job. But when it comes to this kind of research, we probably do need to shift our mode of thinking and recognize that uh, getting to know somebody almost in a less formal, more casual friendship type way is an important step in the process of building that trust. Um, and so if you take the time to do that, the, one of the lessons, I think, is that you actually will get to the results you're looking for just as fast, if not faster, um, and in a more meaningful way for participants. So put the time and effort up front to build those relationships and to make sure that your participants aren't study subjects. But um, for us, I feel like, for me, everybody who is part of coalition um, was an advisor, a colleague, and ultimately a friend. And that made a huge difference. We were not studying them, but we were getting to know them and listening to each other. And then, you know, the research part of this was really studying what we learned from this process of listening to each other. Mm, very fascinating. Good insights there. Thanks, Nate. Um, obviously, every project comes with challenges, difficulties, so I do want to make sure that we don't make it sound like um, there were none in this process. Um, so, Julia, let's turn to you first. Um, any challenges or difficulties that you experienced participating in the project? Uh, I would I would start out with talking about um, the location, and um, I should preface it by saying that I think that it was integral integral to the success of this the study from from a viewpoint of a TBI survivor and, and, and the caregivers that we actually meet in person. Um, conference calls, I think, no matter, even if you're perfectly healthy, <laughs> um, can be challenging. So imagining one that went for six plus hours, uh, that'd be pr pretty difficult. But so I do think that being in the same place was important. But 
we were from all across the country and um, just getting there was was a bit of a challenge um, just with work schedules and, and other responsibilities. But that, that, that's, 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 I think, um, common in any kind of studies of this nature. Um, I would also say that kind of, kind of piggybacking off of um, what I think was just neat that just shared that, um, or John, um, that from the viewpoint of someone who has been a patient for a long time um, dealing with this type of injury, it's hard to not view yourself as the patient, but to view yourself as a contributor to the conversation as an equal. And I think that that was a challenge in some cases, especially in the beginning for some of us, um, especially for those of us uh, who were recruited there by our former psychologists or neuropsychologists, uh, <laughs> was the case for a few of us. So just understanding that we were there to share experiences in, um, in a constructive manner, not to sit there and be in a therapy session. Um, and, and, and I think that that was understood after the first session. And um, But I know a few of us uh, sort of struggled with um, finding a way to, 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 to voice our viewpoints without feeling um, like like uh, the, the questions that were directed at us were those that you might typically share in a you know uh, on a couch if you will um, um, and I and I think that this is that's more on the part of of the TBI survivors not on on the researchers in the group um, that that we had to contend with um, and also just having to be really open and honest and um, and and um, and that's hard to do I think no matter what uh, to be to, to, to talk about your lived experience. Um, in some cases, actually for me in particular, um, it, it had, I guess I started this project and been almost 13 years um, out of my accident. And I had shared stories that I had not talked about since probably that first year. And that was really emotional for me. Um, part of that was because I never had people ask me those questions. I think it was very healthy for me to share them, but um, I don't think I'd ever had anybody who'd wanted to know um, or felt like I was ever comfortable enough to be in a group where people could ask me those kind of questions. And when I shared them, they wouldn't judge me or they wouldn't shame me or they wouldn't over provide too much sympathy in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. And I think, again, anything that's emotional, that can be very challenging um, for folks. Thanks for sharing that as well. You know, we know that coming onto a podcast and, and sharing those experiences also involves opening up. And, you know, I think has made uh, drove home, you know, this culture of equality, respect, trust, relationships. I can see how that was was really important to overcoming those challenges. So, John, let's also hear from you. Um, any challenges or difficulties from your perspective as a professional stakeholder on the project? Um, I don't think um, this is unique to me as a stakeholder. I think that probably everybody uh, felt this difficulty at some point, but as Nate said, it's a process, and the first hour or the first day or the first meeting is not as productive, um, definitely in our case, as the last, you know, hours and, and the yeah, last uh, meeting. Uh, and, and because it's a process, it has to evolve. And there are times when it's like, oh, Nate, didn't we just do this? Or, you know, you want to say, uh, I, I think I've heard this three times now. Um, and uh, I, you know, it, it, it's really important at that point, and this is actually something I've said to colleagues uh, based on uh, the, the uh, work we do with our advisory council, is you simply have to trust the process. 
you know, that if you create create an environment where folks can talk about their lived experience, uh, you will get there. And there may be moments where it feels like you're not getting there, where it looks like, well, we seem to be going all over the place, uh, but uh, you do get there. And so uh, having the patient, the difficulty I would underscore is having the patience to really trust the process. Any surprises in this process? Uh, let's start with you, Nate. You know, I'm not sure. I don't know about surprises. I'm having a. I, I want to respond first, actually, to a little bit of the challenges that Julie sure. and John yeah. were talking. I think you know one of the things is, even though it's important to put this relationship building up there, there's also danger in that. And the challenge there is that you need to somehow, or you're wanting to somehow create a safe environment where people can truly get to know each other, as and and not feel like you have to put on a false front about who you are, but can truly share your beliefs and who you are with each other. Yet, when you start sharing who you are and you start sharing your political beliefs, that can also lead to conflict in a room. And so I think that was one challenge is that we were, that needed to be managed and addressed by the project is how we managed both building uh, relationships in a way that built trust between people, even when they had differing political views on what's going on in the world, for example. Um, and that was one of the challenges. And, you know, I think we just have such a great group. I don't know if it always works out so well, but it, they managed to deal with each other pretty well, even when they didn't care for what each other were saying. Um, and that gets back to the, you know, agreeing to the shared values in the beginning, because Another thing John mentioned is like, oh, I think I heard this three times. Well, one of the things we built into this project was an incredible amount of redundancy. We repeated the same thing over and over and over again. And we did that because many of our participants had, had some pretty significant cognitive impairments and they had memory issues. They couldn't remember what was discussed the day before, let alone six months before. And so in order to really build an environment where they could be equal participants as well, we had to repeat and review and repeat and review every step of the way. And so we also had to um, have an environment where people like John um, was comfortable with that and, was, and could accept that that redundancy and that repetition was necessary. So those were a few things that we had to uh, manage. You know, the, I think the biggest surprise, in a sense, was Julia mentioned the acute care discussion. I actually really look back on it fondly because the entire committee just skewered us. They just went in for the kill on that discussion and told us we were way off base. And it gives me a chuckle now because it was just, it, it was a discussion that didn't work and instantly everybody in the room almost turned on Carly and I as we were trying to facilitate that discussion. Um, so that was sort of a, a bit of a sort of a negative, not negative moment, but a challenging, surprising moment that was also, I look back on fondly, and it was an important lesson that this topic really did need to focus on the long-term recovery and the acute care discussion was off the table. Fascinating. Uh, John and Julia, anything that surprised you about this uh, project and how it went? Uh, I, I was going to say that uh, um, I thought that our final meeting 
was not just good, that it was fantastic. Um, and I went in, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I think like most of us, you know, I think everyone, we really ended up liking each other and, you know, it was enjoyable thing to do with each other. But that last meeting was really something special. And it was special from the point of view of just feeling like we gelled as a group of people. But the, what we came up with in the end, um, I, you know, I was blown away. You know, it was like, wow. You know, this is uh, insightful. It is to the point, um, you know, given that at various times we'd been all over the map, you know, and somehow here we came back to a set of recommendations that I, I think, you know, I, I would willingly, you know, um, promote in any setting and uh, uh, gladly support, uh, promote in any setting and felt so good about, you know, how we got there and each other. I, I mean, I've done a lot of similar things, like I said, and this one was, was very special. So that was my big surprise. I, it shouldn't have been, I suppose. But so I, I would I would share that just actually to to mention the I thought it was funny to to hear both John and Nate talk about the repetition. Um I didn't notice that. <laughs> Probably because um I spend a lot of energy trying to not repeat myself, but I know I do. <laughs> I know I'm not alone in that, um, but it also it says a lot about the fact that um, what was most surprising is it was probably the first interaction I've had both in a personal and professional sense where I felt like I could, I know it sounds very cliche, but I could be me, and um, and, and that was actually welcomed uh, apart from uh, from what I'm typically used to, which is you know, basically hiding what I view as a disability. Uh, I, I spend a lot of energy um, trying to uh, come off as quote unquote normal. Um, you know, the most common thing I hear about when I share that I have a traumatic brain injury, especially the magnitude that I had is that, but you seem so normal. Everything's fine now. That's the most common thing. Everything's fine now. And you're like, well, you clearly don't know much about brain injuries. <laughs> um, so I, this was a group um, that I didn't, ever feel uh, that I had to hide who I was or um, didn't feel shamed um, in any sense. Um, I, um, I'm someone who um, experiences chronic pain in relationship to my brain injury. And that last meeting uh, was really hard on me because I was having one of my, I call them episodes. I was just having um, a bad day uh, uh, and I was having a really hard time dealing with the lights. And, um, and and other factors, and instead of having to do what I normally have to do, which is oh, it's just a migraine, or oh, I didn't get coffee, or my usual like, you know, stupid excuses that I I typically share, um, I just what uh, one of the individuals, another brain injury survivor, just came up and gave me a hug, and then <laughs> three others just came up and gave me a hug, and that's all they did. And uh, I mean, to this day, I I don't think I, there's anything. I would welcome more in terms of support, um, then that's exactly what I needed was I didn't need someone to feel bad for me. I didn't need someone to have me have to explain why I was feeling like crap. Just sometimes you feel like crap and all you want is a little bit of a, just a hug or support. Um, and that subtlety was the first time in 14 years I've ever felt um, like people understood me and um, could empathize in a way that I've, you know, I, I love 
my community and my family and my friends, but you, you, there's just, there's too, there's too small of a group of us who understand, um, what it means to navigate, uh, life with these types of challenges. So that was probably my greatest, um, my greatest surprise as I, I never expected to come out of, um, this experience feeling supported in a way that I've never felt before. So, um, as we wind down here today, I just want to, um, let Nate sort of take us through where you see this project going next um, and where you're taking this work, and then we'll uh, close it off with final thoughts. Sure. Thanks for the question, Adam. You know, the first thing we want to do is disseminate our findings to the field, so to say. So we're going to be putting papers and presentations out there, as well as through our website and social media venues, um, information about uh, you know, how do you engage with TBI survivors as research advisors? What are some of our tools and trainings that we've developed from this that people, other people could use? And then we're also going to be publishing our uh, research agenda that this group came up with. Uh, secondly, though, you know, we want to look to how we can extend or continue the work of critical. And we have two options that we're considering. First is, um, we're looking at a next phase to potentially focus more on caregivers. One of the feedback we got from this project is that there wasn't enough caregiver input. And one of the research agenda priority areas is caregiver needs. So one of the things we're looking at is trying to expand on the group that we already have to bring more caregiver input in and focus specifically on that um, one agenda area. Another thing we want to do is collaborate with other researchers in the field to look to whether we could build uh, what PCORI refers to as a patient-powered research network. And, you know, I kind of have the hope that maybe Critical could remain um, involved as sort of the core of an advisory committee for such a patient-powered research network. You know, the other thing is we do have a website, and I like to sort of point people there as somewhere where you can go and learn more about this. The best way to find that is to search on the internet for the Coalition for Recovery and Innovation in Traumatic Brain Injury Care Across the Lifespan. You could also search critical TBI at UC Denver. And you can find our website. And on our website, there's information about the study, um, broadly who was involved and what we did. All of the training material slides we produced, our meeting minutes, any of our publications will go up there. So there's a lot of information there that people can access to learn more about our project. Excellent. And we will for sure include a link to this work with this podcast notes so that folks can really take a deeper look into the work. And as you mentioned, it sounds like there's a lot of great next steps. So this is kind of an ongoing um, opportunity to see uh, more about patient-centered research and traumatic brain injury. So before we let you all go, I do want to hear any final thoughts. It, it certainly was a, a gratifying process to be part of, and I want to thank you, uh, Nate, for inviting me, and Julia on behalf of everybody who was there, and uh, it being such a great group. Uh, the hearing people's lived experience about the uh, um, having a traumatic brain injury or living with uh, someone who has, uh, as well as the the research priorities we came up with, is just another reminder to me of how much resource we need to be putting into the 
part of the continuum that's living with brain injury. We're spending a lot of money on research and attention uh, to the initial injury and its treatment, to uh, uh, assessment and detection techniques and um, uh, that are used initially, but this this part of the, the continuum, uh, which is living with it, um, we just have not given enough resources to, paid enough attention to, and and um, I hope we can do that. So I would say that um, as someone who spent years being so cautious about speaking about my own experience, I was really grateful to be included um, in part in such a fulfilling. Um, uh, opportunity. And I also was really grateful that I was able to view my own input and my own experiences um, in, a, in a new capacity within the medical community to the point where I actually felt and feel motivated to become more involved in other opportunities. And I've reached out to, to, to the local community here about that. And actually, it even motivated my, my recent decision <laughs> to take on a different job um, which really focuses a lot on health innovation and life sciences. And uh, I really do believe that this, this experience um, helped channel that, that, that decision uh, because I never really thought about how I could marry my, my personal experiences with my professional. And, um, and I saw individuals with lived experience in our group who, who had, and, um, that that meant a lot to me to see that um, I could I could be constructive um, in this new capacity. So I'm very grateful to um, to Corey for allowing um, us to have that experience. Well, I'm grateful for all three of you to, uh, for sharing about this project and your experiences today. And um, that's going to do it for today. Of course, as we mentioned, uh, we're going to have some links to this work and to our participants in this podcast today so you can learn more about everybody involved and uh, feel free to let us know any comments questions um, insights that you have about this work and until next time join us for more interviews on important work in mental health rehabilitation resiliency and uh, thanks for joining us